So I'm going to continue a series that I've been kind of working on with you guys as I've come and preached every Sabbath, or every Sabbath that I have preached, and it's called The Prodigal Prophet, and we're in our third part today called Mercy Encountered. And about two months ago is when I first started this series, and we're familiar with the story of Jonah, right? This is a little background for people that have uh, not heard the other sermons, but we're familiar with the story of Jonah, and when we think of Jonah, the first thing we think of is what? Jonah and the fish, right? But that's uh, VeggieTales' fault, right? That's media's fault. Uh, And so this series, the goal of this series is to, um, I'm just trying to be funny here, but to clear away that vegetation, right, from VeggieTales and teach you guys uh, a very different, more theological approach to the book of Jonah and to really show to you guys that Jonah is a much more deeper message, uh, especially when it comes to how we can understand God uh, in our world today. And like I said, there are many themes, and we're exploring many of those themes. And today we're going to be exploring a theme of mercy. Uh, I want to go ahead and review a little bit because it'll give a little context of what we're going to be talking about. Uh, But the first week we talked about how the book of Jonah can be split into two parts, right? So we see scene one and scene two. Scene one talks about Jonah, the pagans, and the sea. And we literally see like a direct correlation between the first half of the book of Jonah and the second half of the book of Jonah. Jonah is only four chapters long. So we see here Jonah 1, 1 talks about God's word coming to Jonah. Jonah 3, 1, God's word once again comes to Jonah after he's spit out uh, by the fish. And we see, you know, I'm not going to go through each and every one of these, but you'll see that there is a correlation, right? And we see in the end, there's a different reaction of how Jonah reacts initially to the word of God and then how he, in, end, in the end, um, learns an important lesson of grace and mercy through the fish in the first half and then the plant in the second half. And uh, the reason why I titled this series The Prodigal Prophet, and the last week that I do this, this will be two more parts, but the very last week I'm going to focus in a little bit about how there's a connection between the book of Jonah and the parable in Luke 15 of the, pro- the prodigal son, my favorite parable that Jesus told. And I think there's a very strong connection in why Jesus pulls from this story, uh, and I believe he pulls from this story when he talks about this parable of the prodigal son. Now, the first week, uh, we talked about the first three verses. That's all we talked about. Do you guys remember what Jonah means? Jonah means, I have failed. What does Jonah mean? Does anyone remember? It's a dove. I heard dove somewhere. Or is that just me hearing things? Okay. Jonah means dove. Okay. Amittai, if you look at the first verse of Jonah chapter one, it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And Amittai is what? Do you guys remember? Take through your notes. Faithfulness. Okay? <laughs> I failed once again, right? So Jonah, so dove, this elegant image of a elegant image of a dove, okay, is the son of faithfulness. But if you know the story, if you read the story, you would see this, and the first reaction that you should have is laughter. You should laugh at this because it's a joke. Jonah is not elegant whatsoever, and Jonah is the opposite of faithfulness, right? And so you see already there's comedy. So this book, I kind of uh, classified it as kind of a satire, right? It's, it's a fun, it's like a Saturday Night Live, Sunday, you know, Sunday night or whatever the TV show is, right? It's kind of a comedy. It's a satire, right? When you read this story, you see that there's so many elements of, of just comedy, right? And we talked about uh, that first week. We talked about how the mission that God brought to Jonah, which was to go to the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of the empire Assyria, to go and to preach this uh, message of, 
of redemption, right? Of mercy and of grace. And we talked a little bit about what the Assyrian nation or yeah, what the Assyrians did to its captives. Do you guys remember a little bit about that? Okay. So they would do terrible evil things. They would take, you know, the skins of the Israelite people and put them up on the walls. They would take family members' heads, cut them off, put them on poles, and have the family members that are living carry them around throughout the city. So we talked about the historical background of this of this country and why Jonah I mean, if anyone in their right mind would see that as repulsive and just, I don't want to have to deal with that, right? Why should I bring the gospel message to a group of people that is doing so much harm to, to my people, right? And that's the problem that Jonah faces, right? And we explored that in the first week. And we explored how he, he ran into this problem of the mystery of God's mercy, right? And he has clearly not only a theological problem, but he has a heart problem as well, Right? Jonah can't even see his own sin. And unless Jonah can see the fact that he too is in need of the very mercy that God is trying to give to the Ninevites, then Jonah never understands. And he never will understand uh, unless he gets to that point. And I left you last, uh, that first week, that no matter how much Jonah runs, okay, God seems to always be one step ahead. And I think that it's pretty relevant to us today too, right? Just as Jonah uses different strategies in his, in his escape from God, God also has his strategies too and continues to show his mercy in ways that we never will understand or even deserve. And the last time I spoke, um, I think it was about a month ago now, we talked about this ideal of spiritual uh, apathy or this ideal of a perpetual motion, right? Uh, the, the kind of ideal of falling asleep at the wheel. And we discover, like Jonah, sometimes we find ourselves in this, this spiritual perpetual state of mind. And we're like kind of cruising through life, and we're kind of there, but not really all there. And we discover that there's many reasons, right? There could be seasons of life, uh, midlife crisis, whatever it may be. Uh, sometimes it's because of the decisions that we make. Um, we explored how Tim Keller was talking about the ideal that every act of disobedience has a storm that's attached to it, right? Every action or every decision that we make as a consequence, right? And we talked about this ideal of Jonah getting to the point where he's completely and spiritually unaware of what is going around him. And a result of that is what? That he falls to the demise of that, and the people around him suffer from his decisions, right? The people on the boat and whatnot. And then we found in Jonah chapter 1, as we explored a little bit more, that there's a wordplay. That Jonah is going down, down, down. And he's going deeper and deeper into the depths of the ship, right? He goes down to the ship. He goes down to Joppa, right? So we see this wordplay and this idea of him slowly falling into this perpetual state of mind, right? This this. What, what do you say? Falling, literally falling asleep at the wheel. Like he's getting to this point and then he finds himself at the bottom um, and he becomes more distant from God. And then we discovered, the final thing we kind of discovered was his response to the pagan sailors when the storm was a brewing and things were not going well. And he says simply to them like, oh, I'm Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. That's another comedy point, right? Because they're on the sea, the very sea that God is angry at him and everyone else is on that boat. And we saw that in Jonah's response, that he puts his race before his religion, that he prioritizes his patriotic sense of I am a, a prophet of God, but I am, I am Jewish first and foremost, right? And we see that there's clearly a problem with that, right? As a prophet of God, uh, that should not be his uh, initial 
identity. And we know, yes, Jonah had faith in God, clearly. But his faith was not deep and as fundamental to his identity uh, as his race and nationality was for him. And uh, so we kind of talked about that, and we wrapped up uh, with the verse 17 of chapter 1, right? And it says, uh, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. And when we read this, uh, we're not supposed to celebrate and say, yay, like Jonah got eaten by a fish. This is a terrible ending, right? Because now he's in the bottom of the ocean in the belly of a fish. And despite uh, all of that, Uh, The lesson that we pulled away was that despite the rebellion, the spiritual disconnection that Jonah found, uh, and despite all of that, God continued to extend this thing called mercy right, and grace. And despite everything that had happened to Jonah, and despite what was going to come, God continued and promised to continue the very mercy and grace that Jonah was supposed to take to even the Ninevites. right? And that's where we're going to pick up our story today. So... Like I said, we see him thrown over the boat uh, because of his own doing, right? And his own decision, thrown over the boat, and he's in the belly of the fish. And three days, three nights. And first of all, I told you guys this as well. The fish is not important, right? It's literally like a verse, a verse or two, right? It's very minimal. But we get so caught up with talking about, uh, get so caught up talking about this ideal of the fish that I think it's important that we address um, the fish. So we're going to talk about it a little bit. uh, And yeah, so let's clear up this vegetation here. So from the very start of the narrative, okay, we can agree that this book is very kind of like comic book style, right? It's a very satire type feeling in the story of Jonah. And, you know, we look at the name and we're supposed to laugh at that. He's everything opposite of a faithful prophet. Um, And the characters even are very opposite to what their stereotype is, right? So the pagan sailors are the ones that are like casting lots, trying to figure out what God we need to pray to. And they're like, oh, we, we respect this God. And they go back and then do things that typically pagan sailors probably wouldn't do. So there's a lot of comedy there. We see in verse four that the ship even threatens to break up, right? And the word play in the Hebrew is literally saying like the boat like had like a mind of its own. And it was thinking about, oh, should I break apart? Should I stay together in the midst of the storm? And she was like, ah, that's so funny. Okay, I'm a Bible scholar, so maybe it's only funny to me. Okay, but you should see that. And it's, it's comedy. It's straight up comedy and it makes no sense, right? So when we come to the part where Jonah is swallowed by the fish, okay, and we find him in the belly of the fish. And what is he doing at the belly? In the belly of the fish, he's... He's praying, right? He's literally right, like creating these crafty, like poetic, like prayers to God in the belly of the fish. And you should look at that and be like, "Huh, what, what is this guy doing?" Right? This, maybe it's a lack of oxygen. Maybe he's like, like <laughs> losing it in the belly of the fish, and maybe that's why he's doing these weird things. You should see this as completely absurd, right? So now, uh, I talked about this as well before, but whether you see this story as a literal story or maybe just a parable. Um, it's interesting because what Jonah is doing here, the author of Jonah, is placing actual people, right? People, groups, or individuals in the form of character in this story. Whether you, this is a true story or not, and I think it's a true story, but the meaning of the depth doesn't change about this story. And like I said before, uh, if we can believe in the fact that Jesus rose from the grave, right? 
and that Jesus was resurrected, that's a way more crazier story than talking about a dude getting swallowed by a large fish, right? I think, I think this is much more believable. But if we as Christians, and we should all at this point believe that, yes, Jesus resurrected and was, was taken up to heaven, then I think this story is, is equally in, uh, as, as believable as, as that. So anyways, what, what, what I was saying... Um, it has nothing to do with the fish. The story has nothing to do with it. But it's not a focal point either. But there's something that we can take away when we examine the fish. So when we look at this, we should be thinking this question. Okay, what does the Bible have to say? Right? What is God trying to speak to me through this particular part of the Bible? Okay? It's not about trying to put meaning into the Bible or trying to make it fit my worldview and my understanding. But when we look at the Bible, what we need to do is say, what is the Bible trying to tell me? Okay. So with that in mind, okay, what in the world is the author of the book of Jonah? What is he trying to say with this story? Right? What are we supposed to see when we read Jonah chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we see the story of a man being swallowed up by a fish, and this prayer of repentance in the belly, and this transformation, right? So in other words, my question is this. Okay? What is the meaning of this particular scene? The image in the biblical time and setting. And then, how do these images speak God's word to us today? Right? To us in 2019. That's how we should approach this aspect here. Or this, this story of the, the fish. So, we have to understand, before we dive into those questions, that there's an issue... Uh, I strongly believe in how we read and how we try to understand the Bible today. In our modern church culture, and maybe, I could say, maybe if I'm daring enough, I could say in culture in general, right, uh, there's a tendency to do something called cherry picking, right? Or in biblical terms, in the spiritual terms, it's literally Bible verse picking. So, for example, we read the Bible and we go through, you know, read from Genesis to Revelation and we're like, oh, wow, like this is powerful. God is doing great things. And then we see it like a list of names and, and laws and we're like, oh, okay, next, 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 right? And then we take those things and we turn them into like Instagram posts or we turn them into uh, like a picture on the wall, right? You go to a Korean restaurant, they have like, you know, just random Bible verses that that speak to them, right? This is a tendency that we have when we read the Bible. And it's a very dangerous thing to do. Because when you do that, what happens is, is you can make the Bible literally mean anything and everything you want it to be, right? And so this is a little bit of a pointer when you're reading the Bible. Uh, and this is just kind of, maybe not even just reading the Bible, but in communication in general, okay? The first rule that you should have when you read the Bible is always look at context, right? Context tells us everything, right? Can we agree? Because with context, it gives us the precise meaning to whatever we are examining here today. So when we look at this and we see that the man, Jonah, is swallowed by a fish, he's found praying in the belly of the fish, and then he's being vomited out, right? Spit out. Okay, what does that mean? Well, the only way we can know is if we look at context, right? So... No, granted, we could always just look at random things in the Bible, and we could pull out meaning just from reading it, and we could be reflective on it. And I'm not saying that's, that's bad, right? But if we were to simply just look at the book of Jonah and see, okay, there's a fish, and then just pass over it, then we're missing something big, right? We could look at it and just come up with some kind of meaning and say, well, if you disobey God, then God's going to send a fish to eat you if you're out at sea. We could pull that assumption, right? But is that correct? Uh, I, I would beg to differ, right? If we neglect context... We miss out so much significant meaning and, and, and details 
that the Bible really has to say. So I'm going to give you two examples. One is kind of uh, more, more friendly, uh, and the other one is a little bit more biblical. Okay? So the first one is this. Uh, I want you guys to imagine yourselves uh, sitting at a cafe. Think of any cafe or library or wherever you guys you go and do your studies. Okay? Just imagine yourself, you're, you go and you, you know, sit down, you pull out your bag, and you, you order your drink or whatever you want to do at a cafe. Um, and you're pulling out your stuff and you're about to study. And there's like a table next to you with a bunch of like ladies uh, just kind of chattering and talking. And you, you know, you're not trying to be like an eavesdropper. You're not trying to be like rude or anything. But you're sitting there and as you're pulling your stuff out, you hear one lady uh, say like in a very shallow voice. She says, I'm going to kill him. I swear I'm going to kill him. Right. And you're sitting there. And what is your first reaction? What should you do when you hear something like that? I hope everyone understands you have a you should maybe have some kind of obligation to be like um excuse me like you know I don't know if you're trying to plot murder or something but like maybe maybe that's maybe you shouldn't be doing that right but if you were simply just to hear that phrase okay you can imagine right think about all the things that that person could be doing right let's let's kind of dive into it right you could speculate and say Okay, maybe she actually is trying to kill someone, right? So you hear that and you hear it right. Oh, she's definitely going to kill somebody, okay? Or, okay, maybe she had gone to a fight with her husband or maybe with her partner or her friend or whatever, and she's, like, frustrated. And she's like, oh, I swear I'm going to kill him, right? I'm going to kill him, right? Possibly, right? No? Is that just me? Okay. Or um, it could be... Maybe she's frustrated. She just got a new puppy, and the puppy peed in her brand new car, and she's like, oh, I'm going to kill him. I swear I'm going to kill him. Right? She's not being serious, but okay, maybe it's that. Or maybe she's like an author for a book, and she's talking with her friends about, you know, she's trying to kill like, the main character of, of her story. No? Okay, maybe. Okay. There's many different things we could speculate in terms of what in the world is, what does she mean by, I'm going to kill him. I swear I'm going to kill him. Right? And the only way... You could figure that out is doing what? It's asking, right? Uh, excuse me, like, you know, I, you know, I don't think plotting murder is a great idea, but, you know, maybe we can talk about it. Maybe, you know, right? The only way you can find out if this lady is really trying to plot murder or she's talking about maybe a character that she's trying to kill off, right, is by asking, right? Case in point, context. Context is so important, right? So when we read the Bible, it's no different, right? Obviously, the book of Jonah is not some random book that comes out of nowhere. Okay? It's a part of collections of books. So it's important that we look at the context of the Bible, we see the narrative of the entire Bible, and see what is it exactly that God is trying to say with this particular verse of a man being swallowed by a fish and then being spit out onto land. Right? And it's part of a collection of books called... Jonah is a part of what collection of books? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, right? The word of the Lord comes to what kind of people? Prophets, right? Jonah is a prophet, right? The word of the Lord is coming to prophets. So we need to look at the context of what the prophets are all about, right? So this is the basic idea of the prophets. If you haven't read the prophets, I'm going to give you like a 101 really quick synopsis of what it's all about. So this is the story of Israel where God redeems his people out of captivity, out of slavery, and then he begins this covenant relationship with them, right? He gives instructions, laws, guidelines on how to live uh, and how to be a witness, a holy witness to all the nations uh, and to be a distinct group of, group of people, right? And God does his part, and as we know, if we look at the story of the Israelites, 
what, what, is their, what is their situation, right? They completely like, neglect and they break the promises that God has given to them. And they do a terrible job on their part, right? God does his part, but they fail to do their part. And it's filled with disobedience, it's filled with idol worship, and so on and so on, right? The list goes on. So we find the prophets in this context here, where God is bringing a message to the prophets to do what? To tell Israel that they have abandoned God. They seek other things uh, other than God, which results in sin and just the whole nine yards. And that's the message. The message is an accusation of their sins, and it's a wake-up call. It's a pie-in-the-face kind of message, and it's telling them, hey, get your act together, because God made a promise with you. What are you guys doing on your side? So God's promise, God's covenant, the beautiful thing is this, right? The prophets leave usually a message of like, you know, God's going to destroy you. It's the end of you. Like, that's it, right? But the prophets know that God's covenant is so much more greater, so much more stronger than the sin and the wickedness of the Israelites. And that's the beautiful thing that the prophets also bring uh, to the table. And, it, and they focus on this bright side picture of God is still going to preserve the Israelite people and continue the story of his people and bring them to, in other words, the other side. So in other words, the prophets are about a rebellious group, a covenant group of people who are faithless and they abandon their God. And they suffer the consequences of their decisions, but because of God's grace, they are redeemed, and that brings them out to the other side. And that's interesting, because when you hear that, it should remind you of the story of Jonah, right? Because Jonah himself is a guy that is being rebellious, right? He's faithless, and he abandons his God, and he suffers the consequences of his decisions, but because of God's grace... He is redeemed out of the fish, belly of the fish. He's brought out to the other side. Okay? Now, let me go into my second example really quick. Um, I actually do not have it here, so I'll just read it. But if you look at the prophets, if you look at the book of Hosea, for example. Hosea, he uses this very poetic language, and it's quite interesting because there's a connection uh, between Hosea and Jonah. Right? Hosea chapter 8 is very brief. Uh, verse 1 to 4, and then 8 to 10. I'm just going to read it really quick. Uh, Hosea 8, verse 1 to 4, and then 8 to 10. And the word of the Lord says this. But the trumpet to your lips, an eagle is over the house of the Lord, because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. Okay? Number 2, uh, or verse 2. Israel cries out to me, O God, our God, we acknowledge you. Verse 3. But Israel has rejected what is good, and an enemy will pursue him. Okay, so you see there's there's allusions to the story of Jonah. Look at verse eight. This is even more interesting. Israel is swallowed up and now she is among the nations like someone or something no one wants. For they have gone up to Syria like a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has sold herself to lovers. And although they have sold themselves among the nations, I will now gather them together. They will begin to waste away on the oppression of the mighty king. This language of being swallowed up, right? Israel, this group of people is being swallowed up. Like, look at the connection of Jonah, where Jonah is a prophet of God, a man of God. He's being swallowed up by this fish, right? Look at Jeremiah 51, verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has devoured us. He has thrown us into confusion. He has made us an empty jar. Like a serpent, and in the Hebrew language, it also translates to monster, um, but it alludes to the ideal of a sea creature, okay? So, like a sea creature, or sea monster, or sea serpent has swallowed us and filled his stomach with our delicacies and then spewed us out, right? Do you see this language of the prophets here connecting with the story of Jonah? Is it just me? I'm so excited about this, you guys, right? Okay. 
So if you guys look, if you were in biblical times and you, you were familiar with the prophets and you had heard about the prophets and you saw the book of Jonah, your instinct would have been like, dude, Jonah is a representation of the Israelite nation. It's, it's us, right? If you were Israelite reading Jonah, you would have been like, dude, that's us, right? You would have saw in yourself as a person in the belly of the fish. And that's you, right? You're the disobedient, faithless person, right? You would be calling yourself out. And people in biblical times would have seen this, and they said, man, this is my story in the form of a narrative, right? If you notice all the minor prophets, Jonah is the only one that's stole, told in story form, right? It's, so, it's very interesting. So when you see that, there should be that connection. So that's something. Anyways, uh, let's carry on. So now that we took a long detour in talking about just simply this fish, uh, I hope you can see the power of this image, right? Of why this is used. So we'll continue the story. Jonah, he's now trapped in the belly of the fish. Uh, you know, very little oxygen. There's fish bones all around him, seaweed, all of that great stuff. And because of his disobedience, because of his faithlessness, his foolish decisions, he's trapped in this place of adversity, right? Of hardship. In other words, he's hit rock bottom. Tim uh, Keller has a quote, and I will be very sad if it's not on the screen. Um... Well, I have the verses here. Okay, so this is a quote by Tim Tim Keller, and I think it's very beautiful, and it kind of summarizes what I've been talking about, what I will talk about. He says this, It is only when you reach the very bottom, when everything falls apart, when all your schemes and your resources are broken and exhausted, that you are finally open to learning how to completely depend on God. As it is often said, you never realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You must lose your life to find your life, right? This is so powerful, right? Wow, right? So when you look at the prayer of Jonah, okay, I want to challenge you guys. When you look at this poetic prayer that Jonah is crafting up in the belly of the fish, I think it's an invitation for each and every one of us to see Jonah's own experience of praying through hardship, praying through his struggles, praying through all of those things when he really had no one else to blame but himself. That we can see our own struggles, right? How do we handle our struggles, our difficulties, our adversaries? What do we do in the belly of the fish when we are dealing with hardship, right? I think this prayer of Jonah is a way for us to put on these glasses, right? And to really just examine and look at our own lives. And I want to challenge you as you read this prayer, as we read this prayer together, uh, that whether the mess that you're in, the hardship that you're in is because of your own foolish decisions, or if it's because of people around you that have put you in that place. uh, When we look at this prayer, I want to challenge you uh, to use this as a tool to kind of see your life and the hardship and the struggles that you may be in. And what our relationship to God should look like and how we can process through those difficulties. Okay, so let's read with, read with me. Um, and I know I'm like super short on time, so we're going we're gonna to go through this, right? So uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, From the inside of the fish, uh, Jonah prayed to, his Lord, to the Lord his God. And he said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Okay, pause right there. Okay. How many of you guys have found yourself in a moment of distress and you've had to call out for help? How many of you guys have found, maybe you don't, if you're not comfortable raising your hands, okay, 
Um, I'll tell you a really quick story, actually. So when I was much younger, uh, I used to go hiking quite a bit. And in Alaska, there's this one hiking uh, spot called Flat Top. And literally, as the name is, the mountain is flat, right? The top, or not the mountain, the top is flat, right? And so people usually, you know, it's a three-hour hike going up and three-hour hike down. And you get to the top, and it's literally, like, just, like, flat. Like, you could build, like, a house there or whatever, right? And I remember as a young kid going, and I actually did not like hiking. So I hated hiking, and my group of friends, my cousins, and myself, you know, we're, we're, the whole church is there, and we're, like, going up, and there's, like, three stages. There's, like, a really easy stage where it's, like, not that slow or not that steep, and then the second one, it gets a little bit harder, and the third one is, like, all rocks and stuff, and, like, it's, like, crazy. But I remember we were getting up to the, about the second part, and we were, like, dude, we're done. Like, we want to just go back to the bus, and we want to, you know, play our video games and go on our phones and do whatever, right? And so the parents were like, okay, if you guys go all down together, then we'll let you go. So they let us go, and as we were going down, we thought, or I thought that there was going to be a shortcut if we just go over this large hill uh, instead of going around the hill. And so I went up the hill, and then I tried going down the hill, and I'm like running, and you know what happens when you start running, and you know, you're starting to pick up speed, and you can't stop. Does, am I the only one that runs down hills, right? So I run down hill, and like, I can't control it. Like, I'm like, going straight down to the trail, and at the end of the trail, it's just like a cliff. It's like, boop, like, all gone, right? So I'm just like, okay, I'm going to die. Like, I don't know. Like, my you know, nine-year-old self was thinking, like, oh, like, I lived a wonderful nine years of my life. And I'm like, running down the hill, and I trip on a branch, and I literally like, fly through the air. And in that moment, I was crying out to God, like, God, like, I don't know if I'm ready to die. Like, God, please, I'm only nine years old. Like, God, please, right? And then, you know, long story short, some, like, dude, like, was, like, right there and, like, kind of caught me as I was, like, in the air, midair. He asked if I was okay and whatnot. But have you ever found yourself in that moment, right, when you're on the verge of death or when you think you're on the verge of death, right? All the, like, the, the little tiny things of life, the day-to-day things that happen in our life become very, like, irrelevant, right? But when you're at the verge of death and when you're about to die, that's like everything, right? That's all, you're just like, like your priorities really straighten up at that point, right? Um, you know, and we usually don't forget those kind of days. And, you know, last week we did a sandwich outreach to uh, the bridge that we usually go to. And, um, you know, someone had actually died recently. John had sent me actually a, a news article about that. And someone had passed away, and I, re- I just knew that when we were going there last week that those people would have been affected by that death, right? And so I was telling the kids that were with me, like, let's not, you know, let's not be insensitive about that. Let's just understand their situation. So we go there, and we're talking. And the first person we talked to, I think his name was Andy, um, he was just saying, like, you know, this person, she lived right next to me, and she died because she didn't have insulin, and, you know, she was diabetic. And he was like, it was a wake-up call for all of us, Right. These people that are living on the streets saw that as, you know, they're never going to forget the day when the person that was sleeping right next to them died because they didn't have insulin, right? And so the moment that you find yourself in, in despair at the brink of death, you never forget those things, right? And, you know, our default as human beings, when we find ourselves in those moments of, of life, right, I think a natural instinct of us is to be like, dude, where's God, right? Why is God not here for me? But it's interesting because when you look at the prayer of Jonah, right? You look at the prayer of Jonah, he understands that God is listening. As God is seemingly, in, on our point of view, God is not there. For Jonah, God is there. In the, in the belly of the fish, Little oxygen, you know, fish bones and seaweed on his forehead, right? God is there. And that's, that's crazy. As Jonah cries for help, 
Jonah makes the opposite conclusion. That in his distress, God is not absent, but God is present. Right? And that's interesting. And at the very bottom of it all, it's, like, it's weird. Because when we feel the farthest away from God, the reality is, is God is actually the closest to you and I. Think about that, right? So anyways, let's continue. Uh, verse 3. You hurled me into the depths, into the, very, uh, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me, all your waves breakers swept over me. Okay, pause again. So whose waves are we talking about? Who is Jonah attributing these waves to? Your. Who's your? Who's you? God. He's attributing this to God. Now, I could totally have a different sermon, and some of you guys could call me out and be like, look, God is being this evil, bloodthirsty person, right? He's sending these waves and breakers to kill him, right? It looks like he's trying to kill Jonah. But we have to remember the context of what's going on here, right? I said in a previous sermon, and um, I've said in a few talks with some of you guys before, we have to remember, okay? God is out there to call his man, right? To call him back to what his original purpose was. And this is the big picture, right? God is trying to send Jonah, right? To go and extend the mercy and grace to, to the people of Nineveh, right? And Jonah is just being really difficult with God. Now, some of us, we might get very uncomfortable with this ideal, that maybe God is out there sending these storms into our lives, right? But if you, you know, if you, if you look at the context of what is going on here, right? We have to remember when God is dealing with, in the moment, in the moment of brokenness, in the moment of despair, in the midst of the storm, sometimes we may think and we may feel like, dude, God is against me. But then, have you been in those moments and looked like five years, like fast forward and you look back at that? And you see like, oh, well, actually, God has been really good to me. Like God really like worked through that, that moment of turmoil and turned it really into something good, right? When you look back in hindsight, you see that God has always been a good God. And even if maybe Jonah is accrediting the storm to, to God and saying it's you know, God's fault for sending me into the, you know, sending these waves and these breakers. But the important thing to remember is look at the context. Look at the big picture of what God is trying to do. And when we look in hindsight, right, you see the mercy and the grace and the goodness that God continues to be. And I know that doesn't really answer all the loopholes that maybe some of you guys are thinking. Uh, and we can get into that much later. And I'm not a prophet, right? I'm not, I'm not saying like, you know, like, you know, if you have turmoil in your life, I can say, well, that's God, right? I can't, I can't do that. I have no right to say that. And I have no ideal, right? Um, but I can tell you for sure that God's highest priority in, his, in, in working in our lives is to shape us and to shape us into the image of Christ. Amen? Right? You look at Romans 8, and Paul talks about that over and over again, right? James 1 to 2, right? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, right? God is not out there to destroy you. God is out there to build you and to shape you into a man that is more like Christ, man or woman more like Christ. And so before I drift away from the message, let's quickly go through this prayer. And I've said, verse 4, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. Pause. He's at the bottom of it all, right? And we said this earlier, Tim Keller's quote. His priorities, we see it's all changing. It's shifting for the better. And when he's at a place where he's gone his own route, when he finds himself at rock bottom with absolutely nothing, he turns around and then he goes back to God. He looks to God and everything that God is doing looks really good to him now, right? It looks attractive. I'm going to look again towards your holy temple. And it kind of sounds like the prodigal son, right? When the son was found in the pig pen of life, 
when he had absolutely nothing, that's when going back to the Father looked the most attractive, right? Jonah, same thing. Bottom of the belly of the fish. He looks back to see what God's calling is. Wow, that looks so much more better, right? You never realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. That's so powerful, you guys. Verse 5, okay? The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Comedy, right? You see, you see this image. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. This is the turning point for Jonah here, right? It's powerful and something we need to always remember. Because in the moments of brokenness that Jonah experienced, the moments of despairs, the near-death experience that, that we find, this is where the clutter, everything else in life doesn't really matter, right? And life really becomes much more crystal clear. Right? And um, we see Jonah clearly right here. The only thing left that he has is God. God is the only thing that he has left. It's God's commitment to him. And it's, it's the complete paradox of, of, of everything, right? It's the worst experience he could possibly ever have, having nothing left and being found at the bottom of that pit. But it's also the best experience that anyone can ever take, right? Because you truly discover how broken, how fragile, and how you have this huge God-shaped hole in your heart, and that there's a God that's waiting Waiting there to show you that mercy and that grace and to fill that very hole that's in your heart. And let's wrap up the prayer. Verse 7, uh, 8, 9, and 10. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Oh, really quick pause. Remember you as an as a Old Testament theme, talking about looking back at the goodness, right? When people say to remember, to remember, it's a reminder of what God has already done. And putting it in perspective now. Looking back in hindsight of what God has done. So when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. Right? When he's at the bottom, he remembers God. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love to them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. The Bible talks about vomit. Isn't that interesting? Okay. But this is, this is beautiful here. This prayer that Jonah, even if, if you, know, you talk to me and I tell you the book of Jonah is actually about a terrible prophet, the prayer that Jonah has in this moment of distress is a beautiful replication of what we can pray when we find ourselves in moments of distress. When we find ourselves in moments of despair, Jonah's prayer right here, in the midst of all of that, this is where he encounters God's mercy and grace, right? And it's in this prayer where we can see the beautiful thing that God is trying to do in Jonah's life. And as we'll discover much more later in chapters 3 and 4, we see that Jonah is going the wrong route, right? And he seems to be going the right way, but he kind of ventures off the wrong way. And so with this uh, story of of Jonah and his mercy, I pray that we can discover and, and find a tool in this prayer to carry us through moments of despair and moments of struggle. Amen.